0: (laughs) All right, welcome. Page eight, is it page eight? It says uh, top second 2,000 years, part one, page eight, all right. And we left off at the bottom of page 8. So let me remind you quickly about what uh, how to get the most out of your Bible is covering. And that is that we're trying to take some of the intimidation out of this big and uh, old book, ancient book. And one way to do that is to understand that even though it's large and even though it's old, it's just about a handful of things. It's about uh, creation and fall and redemption. It's about God giving an orientation to his world, who he is and what he expects from us. That's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. And then it is unfortunately about the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. That's disorientation, so that everything that God had made and given that orientation to becomes distorted. Uh, Now things are disoriented. Nothing fits. Nothing's the way it's supposed to be. And so that's been the plight of humanity ever since Genesis chapter 3. If the story ends there, then we are a miserable lot, but God does not leave it there. It's about this third thing, redemption. So creation is who God is and what he expects from us. Uh, The fall is who we are and what our problem is. And then redemption is what God is doing about it. And that's a reorientation. God is restoring all that has gone wrong back to its original design, its original intentions. And so as you go through the storyline of the Bible, that's what you have. You have God making right what has gone wrong. And it's God taking the initiative to do all of this. In the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says, I'm going to bring a solution to this problem of sin. And the solution is going to come through a human being, the seed of the woman. And there's going to be this battle between his seed, the, the people that I am going to work through that will ultimately produce this human being, that will be the solution. There's going to be that line, but then there's going to be the, uh, everybody else opposing that uh, in a fallen world. And so in Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, representing Satan, he says, I'm going to pit enmity. There's going to be war between your seed, serpent, uh, and the seed of the one who's going to to come through the woman. And you are going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to have the the victory. Well, how's that going to come about? Now the story moves forward. And you see in the opening chapters of the Bible how bad it gets and how it goes south so quickly. Chapter 4, you have the first murder. Uh, Cain murders Abel, the uh, sons of... Uh, the first couple, Adam and Eve, Uh, and God gives a a genealogy in chapter 5, kind of keeping track now of the seed as it's going to go go forward. And one of the sons of Adam and Eve is Seth, and the Bible emphasizes uh, the line of Seth. And one of Seth's uh, progeny is a man named Noah. And in chapter 6, though, God's verdict on humanity as generation after generation comes into being and shows that they are their father's and mother's children because of their sin, God says in Genesis chapter 6 and and verse 5, Genesis 6-5, that the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of humanity were only evil continually. So it's ugly. And God determines to judge than the world with a a flood, and he does that. But he spares one of these descendants of Seth, Noah, and his wife, and their three sons and their wives. Eight people survive the, the judgment of the flood. And you're seeing in this, this pattern that I've told you to look for as you read through the Bible, of God's grace being given, but then the response of humanity, and the response is always some kind of rebellion, some kind of failure, some kind of sin, And then God's judgment upon that, but then God renews a a call of grace again. So it's grace, and then the sinful response, and then judgment, and then grace again. And so there is the the flood, that's judgment, but God shows his grace again. He says, I'm not going to do that again. Here's a rainbow. This is a covenant that I'm making, the Noahic covenant. I'm making this with Noah, and I'm making it with all of creation. I, I will not judge the world in this way again. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, Genesis 8, 22, God says that from here on, the seasons are going to continue in their cycles. And so now we can, uh, because of that, God is giving a promise that we can engage like in scientific inquiry. If you think about it, if you have God intervening all the time in the, in the machinery then we can never predict anything. Now, you know, the weathermen can barely predict anything. Now, I understand that. But at least in theory, they're supposed to be able to. Okay, And that's why that we can do that, because God made that, that promise. But God is gracious. He makes that promise. You've got the Noahic covenant. But then there's the sinful human response again. And we come to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. You have the Tower of Babel. This is another rebellion of humanity against God. God judges by confounding their language, separating them. And then God narrows uh, his attention and narrows his plan down to a man, another man, and his um, descendants. And that man is Abraham. So at the end of Genesis chapter 11, and then... Chapter 12 and following in the first book of the Bible, the Bible storyline follows Abraham. Uh, Abraham, his son Isaac, the promised son. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name is changed to to Israel. One of those sons is Joseph, top of page 8. We talked about Joseph and the fact that his uh, brothers sold him into to slavery. They thought they had rid themselves of him because they were jealous of him. God worked in his circumstances so that he became prominent in Egypt. Years later, there's a famine, and Joseph's family, including his father Jacob, have to come to Egypt in order to get food. And guess who's in charge of the food? None other than Joseph. And you get to the end of the first book of the Bible, very last chapter, chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Genesis 50 and verse 20, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. These guys have come. They're now before Joseph. They realize they're before Joseph. They're thinking to themselves, we are dead meat because he's got to be ticked at us. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's one of the great verses in the Bible because that's what happens in God's world. What people intend for evil, God overrules because God is the one that's ultimately orchestrating all that happens and it's all moving toward God's appointed end. That's why God can write a book and he can put a last book in that book, the book of Revelation, that tells you how it's all going to turn out. Well, how can he do that? Because he's orchestrating everything that happens up to to that point. And here in the first book, you, you see that. And then God begins now to do what he had told Abraham he was going to do back in chapter 12 of Genesis. He says, I'm going to make your name great, and your seed is going to be multiplied. And this great nation comes out of the ancestors of Abraham and God uh, in, in Egypt, of all places. And they grow to be a nation of about two and a half million people. They are there for over 400 years in slavery. And then God, with a powerful hand, uh, moves to have them released from from bondage to Pharaoh. That's what the second book of the Bible is about, Exodus, the exit, the Exodus. And it's Moses who leads that. Numbers 2, 3, and 4 on page 8. Moses led the Exodus. Israel received the law and the plans for the tabernacle as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why did they wander for 40 years? I told you last week. Because they had delayed for 40 days to do what God told them. They left Egypt. God said, go into the land that I promised to Abraham and go and take it. But there were people living there. They sent spies in to check out if it was safe. They decided God couldn't pull it off. (laughs) And so they said, no, we're not going in. And God says, you're going to wander one year for every day you disobeyed me. So the reason it's 40 years is because they disobeyed for, for those 40 days. It's not a random number. And so they wander in the, the wilderness, number, number four. At the end of that, though, and at the end of Moses' life, uh, his successor Joshua leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land and fits and starts obeying and sometimes disobeying other times is what you read in the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua but they do go into an, uh, the land. But number six down at the bottom, Judges maintained the land for a period of time, and that's the seventh book in your Bible, the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a dark book, and it has this refrain in it over and over that in those days Israel had no king, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When people are doing what's right in their own eyes, look out, because are people good? I mean, you know, you're only in the seventh book of the Bible, but you've already gotten ample (laughs) evidence. People are not good. And by the way, that would include you. That would include me. That includes everybody. So we got to lose the idea. I mean, I just, I have a three month old granddaughter. And if anybody comes into this world completely innocent, it's Kit, our granddaughter. (laughs) She's just too cute to be a sinner. But even cute people are sinners, okay? <laughs> and, you know, really, I, I'm joking about it, but I think, I think we lose perspective sometimes. Because God, I know we do, because God is so gracious to us in restraining the effects of our evil, restraining the effects of what we really could do if we were just left to ourselves. But God has not left this world to itself, Thankfully. And so there are these restraints, and there are restraints of conscience, and there are restraints of police. By the way, you know police are a good thing in a sinful world? I don't want to wax too political here, but I know there's a bunch of anti-law enforcement and all of that, even from the right these days, and I would just caution you about that because you don't want a world, a fallen world, where people do their own thing. You do not want that. The Bible predicts a time when that will happen. It's called the Great Tribulation. <laughs> and it's an ugly time because God has lifted the, the restraints. So, okay, I feel better. I'm gonna, I'll move on. Every now and then I just, you know, go off on a tangent like that. Um, and so everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. It's not a good thing when sinful people do that. So it was a dark time. Uh, it's written in that way. You come out of that seventh book and you're going, wow, this is, this is pretty ugly. But you're seeing the cycle of grace and sinful response and judgment. But now you're going to see grace again. We left off with the book of Ruth. And four chapters. And it's the grace of God. And it starts in verse 1. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled. That's how it starts. In the days when the judges ruled. So it's saying to you, this book is being written at a dark time, in the days when the judges ruled. And then it shows somebody disobeying, a guy named Elimelech, and he goes to Moab when you're not supposed to go to Moab. And everything goes south. He dies. His two sons die. But before that, they had already married Moabite women, which is also something they were not supposed to do. And so his now widow and these two younger widows set out to come back to Israel from which they had, they had first come. Uh, One of them turns back, goes back to Moab. But Ruth, the daughter-in-law, stays with her. They come back to Israel, and then in chapter 2 and verse 2 or 3, it says, as it turned out. I told you last week, another one of the great phrases in the Bible. As it turned out. Like it just sort of happened that they came upon a guy named Boaz, who, who who was a wealthy businessman. He had a field. They needed food. And... Ruth is gleaning for for food. He notices her. They get married. And she is the great-grandmother of King David. And this all takes place in a town called Bethlehem. So it's in the eighth book of the Bible, in the book of Ruth, that we're introduced to the town of Bethlehem through whom, through whom David would come. And then... Uh, hundreds of years later, through whom a descendant of David would come. None other than Jesus, born in Bethlehem. And it's the reason that Bethlehem is called the city of David. When you come to your New Testament and the angel announces the birth of the Messiah, this day is born to you in the city of who? Of David. Why is it the city of David? Because Ruth and Boaz. That's why. And uh, did I, I don't think I said this last week, but you know she is uh, following behind... The uh, harvesters, she's picking up what food she can that they don't harvest. That was the welfare system of Israel. And in the King James, it calls that gleaning. And I don't think I said last week, uh, there's an organization called Gleaners. And it's named after that from the book of Ruth. It's uh, from this idea of gleaning and then giving to people who are in need, which is exactly what was happening with Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So, David uh, is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And David comes on the scene next, and that's what you have at the bottom of page 8. Saul, David, and Solomon ruled the land. After the judges came a time of kings and prophets, the first three kings were Saul and David and Solomon. Each reigned about 40 years, but David was the beginning of the true kingdom, or the true monarchy. Now let me just point something out about that, and then we can turn and and move on. So you've got these kings, and in your Old Testament, as you read, you're going to have three prominent titles, three prominent offices that you're going to read about. You're going to read about kings, but you'll read about prophets, And you'll also read about priests, prophets and priests and kings. So throughout the Old Testament, a number of prophets, a number of priests, a number of kings. Here's what you want to know about all of them. They all failed. (laughs) That's That's what the Bible is teaching you. About all of these guys who were prophets, about all of them who were priests, and about all of them who were kings. Every last one of them failed. None of them was the perfect prophet, priest, and king. What do you think the Bible is setting up? That there's going to be this one who comes through the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis 3.15, and we keep seeing how bad humanity is in the grace, sinful response, judgment, grace cycle. We keep seeing how bad humanity is even in the prophets and priests and kings that God gives to Israel. And so we're still, we're going to see... Today, when we get to the end of the Old Testament, we're still looking for someone who's going to come and lead. And now on this side of the first advent, the coming of the Messiah, we know who that is, none other than Jesus the Messiah. So take a look at page 9, and you've got your chart there. So you've got another one of these, I think, helpful charts. We filled one out for the first 2,000 years, and now this is the second 2,000 years, but part one that goes from Abraham to... um, No, excuse me, i got the wrong one, don't I? It is the second 2,000 years, part two. I had it right. Okay, I I should never doubt myself. All right. Page nine. And you look up at the top and... Uh, we've filled some of that in last week we didn't fill any of it in did I tell you to fill it in? I didn't say hey if you look on the previous page on page 8 and the words are in bold you could fill that in yourself I said that didn't I? hey Gordon we have this recorded don't we? alright and if we don't have it recorded here's what I want you to know that, that the Bible says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ And there's going to be a big screen, and this is going to be on it. And I'm going to go, see, I told you guys that I said that. All right, here we are on page nine. Let's fill it in. At the top there, you've got the major people then that we've looked at. And you've got uh, on the left at 2000 BC, Abraham. He's the key person, Abraham. And the key event is the move. Abraham moving from Ur of the Chaldees to... um, of the Chaldees, to the promised land. And then if you move forward 500 years, 1500 BC, the key person is Moses, and the key event is the Exodus. And then if you go another 500 years, 1000 BC, that's where we just left off, the key person is King David, it's David, and the key event is the kingdom, or the monarchy. So it's David and the monarchy. And then that rectangle along the the left side. In the second 2,000 years, you've got these events chronologically. You've got number one, Joseph in Egypt. Joseph in Egypt. And then number two, the Exodus. And number three, the the law slash tabernacle. So number one is Joseph in Egypt, number two is the Exodus. Number three is the law slash tabernacle, God giving the law and the tabernacle. Number four is the wandering, wandering in the wilderness, or just the wandering. Number five is the conquest. Conquest, that's jo- Joshua leading the people into the promised land, conquering. So you've got number one, Joseph in Egypt. Number two, the Exodus. Number three, law slash tabernacle. Number four, wandering. Number five, the conquest. Number six is the judges. And number seven, the monarchy or the kingdom. Joseph in Egypt, Exodus, law slash tabernacle, wandering, conquest, judges, monarchy. And you, you see to the right of that, you've got this family tree. Abraham, Abraham's chosen son is Isaac, and that's why the tree goes out from Isaac. He had other sons. He had Ishmael and others, but Isaac is the promised son. Isaac has other sons besides Jacob, but the Bible follows Jacob, who's called Israel. He has these 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you notice to the left of that family tree that one of Jacob's sons is Judah. You guys see that? The left of the family tree is Judah. So if you were to jot down next to Judah's name, Genesis 49.10. Genesis 49.10. And in Genesis 49.10, the Bible says this, the scepter, that is the, the ruling scepter of the, of the king, the scepter will not depart from Judah. The king is going to come through the line of Judah. That's predicted in Genesis 49 and verse 10. And sure enough, through Judah comes Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth, great grandparents of David. David comes through the line of Judah. Sometimes you hear Jesus referred to as the lion of the tribe of, you guys have heard of this? Of Judah. That's why. He comes through this son of Jacob, Judah. So you have David. David has a son named Solomon, King Solomon. And then eventually comes King Jesus. okay? All right, if you'll look at page 10 then, the second 2,000 years, but now part two, we're going from David to Daniel and to the end of the Old Testament. So all of these prophets, priests and kings fail. They all sin. none of them, none of them gets it right. King David. King David gets it <laughs> wrong. And David, you know, overall he's a good king. But he gets, it, uh, he gets it pretty badly wrong, doesn't he? Some of you know the story that uh, David is unfaithful to his wife, that David um, sees and lusts after a woman named Bathsheba. And he's the king. And so he can demand To have anything and anyone that he desires? One way that sin shows up in our lives is when we are unaccountable. And the reason accountability is a good thing for all of us is because sin left unrestrained is a dangerous thing. A a sinful heart. And that includes in redeemed people because we still have the vestiges of the sin nature with us this side of heaven. And so I really encourage you to never isolate yourself as a Christian. It's one of the reasons that you have a church and a community of brothers and sisters to help you and to keep you in line and to keep me in line. Really, the Bible teaches this. Okay. Uh, Galatians chapter, if you think I'm making that up, Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother or sister caught in a sin, you who are spiritually mature seek to restore that one. Well, how am I going to see this person struggling if we don't have a relationship, right? So the Bible assumes we have relationships to help each other. It has that kind of thing over and over again. But David's got nobody to keep him. When you're the king, when you're at the top of the heap, and so David can do what he wants, and he did do what he wanted. And he summoned to have this woman brought to him, and he committed adultery with her. And he figures it's just a one-night fling. He finds out later she's expecting his child. Well, now what is he going to do? And he seeks to have this uh, to have this covered up. And so he calls her husband Uriah, who is a general in David's army, and he says. Uh, hey, come and take a vacation. Why don't you and the missus hang out together? And the idea is now if she's expecting, everybody will think it's because Uriah came home and they had some time together. Uh, But Uriah doesn't want to do that. And so David has him uh, murdered, sends him out uh, on a failed mission intentionally out on the battlefield. Uh, It all just falls apart uh, for David. And God sends a prophet to David, a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan tells this story uh, to David about uh, someone who takes a poor man's sheep, a poor man's, uh, uh, one of his few belongings, and takes it for himself even though he was a rich man. You guys remember this story? And, And David is irate. And Nathan says, What do you think should happen to that guy? He should be killed. And Nathan says, You are the man that I'm talking about. So, you know, to put it in today's language, you to man, okay? But you to man in a bad way. And David is cut to the heart. He's convicted for what he's done. Psalm 51 in your Bible, Psalm 51 is about David after he did all this. And after all of this is exposed, I'm looking at Psalm 51 now, the superscription for Psalm 51, that superscription, that's the title up at the top. And it describes what this is about. It says, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David wrote a psalm that's memorialized now for us for 3,000 years. And it's Psalm 51, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And listen to this next verse. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Let me stop there. Against you and you only have I sinned. Is that technically true? He's the king. Who all did he sin against? I mean, we've got a pretty long list here, don't we? I mean, it would be, say, the whole nation, number one. But you would also have, of course, Bathsheba. Uriah's dead. Seems like you've sinned against him. But ultimately, when we sin, who is it we sin against? And see, you need to remember that. I need to remember that. That sin is always, first and foremost, an offense against God. Even when it involves other people. This whole psalm is a great thing to teach us about the uh, darkness of sin, Uh, but also about confession and confessing our sin and owning it. Because David uses these personal pronouns over and over again. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. It's not, you know, she shouldn't have been out there bathing naked, and then I went, okay, that's what we would do. She tempted me. Make excuses. David's making no excuses. And then it is against you, you only have I sinned. So that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And he goes on. And then he says uh, this. He says this uh, verse that I want to make sure you guys understand, and then we'll, we'll move on. He says, do not cast me from your presence... Or take your Holy Spirit from me. So here is David as a redeemed man, like Abraham was. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Remember that? That's how people have always had a relationship with God, is by believing God and God's promises. And and God then graciously grants a relationship with himself. It's not ever been based upon what we do. It's based upon God's grace, if we simply believe Him. It's always been by faith, always. In the first part of your Bible, and always. And so it was true for David as well. But here David has sinned, he's a child of God, and he, if he's truly a child of God, he's always a child of God. The Bible teaches that when we become children of God, and we are adopted into God's family, God does not disinherit His children. And so we remain in his family. So why is David then saying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Because it does sound like he could lose, doesn't it? And so what's he he asking for? Here's, Here's what's going on there. Is that when these kings were anointed, like King David was, there was an actual anointing. There was the pouring of oil on the head and anointing them for the task that they were going to carry out. And the oil was representative of God's spirit, being given to the king to lead the nation. So they were being uh, imbued with gifting and power to do the work that God had called them to. It's called the theocratic anointing. It's a fancy term, the theocratic anointing. It's an anointing with oil uh, for the task of leading the nation in this case. Um, David was given that. Saul was given that. Solomon was given that. The kings were were given that. And when you come to the New Testament, this is why it's so important that when Jesus is baptized and you see the Holy Spirit coming on him like a dove, you guys remember that? This is the theocratic anointing for the king who who has come. So that's what David had. He had this anointing from the Holy Spirit. What he's praying for is not... Hey, don't disinherit me as a child of God, but rather, in your mercy, allow me to continue leading the nation. Do not remove the anointing from me, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to to lead the nation. And God graciously granted that request, although he he certainly could have taken it away. All right. David sins. Bathsheba, Uh, his son Solomon is a a, a son of David and Bathsheba. Um, uh, Solomon goes on to sin with women a lot. So Solomon's the wisest guy that ever lived on the one hand, and he's also the biggest philanderer of all time. So again, these guys just keep failing. And it's setting us up for the one to come. Now notice where all of this on page 10 is located in your Bible. Take a look at page 10 and you see the numbers 8 through 12. And look at the references, the biblical references. Look at number 8, the kingdom split 1 Kings chapter 12, you guys see that? Then if you look at the next one, the northern kingdom exiled, we'll talk about that, but just notice 2 Kings chapter 12, verse through chapter 25. The next event, the southern kingdom exiled, 2 Kings, but also 2 Chronicles 12 through 36. The southern kingdom in Babylon, 2 Chronicles 36. And then the Jews return, 2 Chronicles 36, and then Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm pointing those out because I want you to just know, you can see from this then. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. You can see the content of what those books are. So we have come up through, we've come up through Ruth, and now you're, you're coming upon Ezra and Nehemiah. You're coming upon 1 Kings, 2nd Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. All of these are about the, the kingdom. And they're all about, and they're all about the kings and the captivities uh, found in those, all found in those books. So the first item, number 8, the kingdom is, is split. After Solomon, the kingdom split in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. The first king in the north was Jeroboam, he was one of Solomon's warriors. The first king in the south was Rehoboam, that was Solomon's Solomon's son. And so you have Rehoboam, who is a son, according to 1 Kings chapter 12. You have Jeroboam, who was a former official. You have Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Those comprise what's called the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom is comprised of the other ten tribes. Remember, there's ten tribes. Two of them, two of the, there's twelve tribes, two of the twelve, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, are the southern kingdom, and the other ten are the northern kingdom. So you have how the kings go, Saul, David, Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom splits. Two tribes, the southern kingdom, ten tribes are the northern the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is uh, ruled by uh, uh, Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom uh, by Rehoboam. So number nine there, the northern kingdom, though, is exiled to Assyria. The northern kingdom, called Israel, had 19 kings, all of them bad. (laughs) This kingdom lasted about 200 years, was captured by and exiled. That is, the people were carried away as slaves to Assyria. For the most part, the Israelites did not return to the land of Canaan until the time Israel became a nation again in 1948. Yikes, that would be a long time, wouldn't it? So, God's grace, sinful response, judgment. Judgment has lasted a long time, but God's grace again in bringing Christ, the, the Messiah, as we'll see when we get to the New Testament. And then you have the southern kingdom. southern kingdom was also exiled, but to Babylon. The southern kingdom, called Judah, also had 19 kings, one queen. Some were good, some were bad. Lasted 300 years was then captured and exiled to Babylon, which had become the world leader over Assyria. And the southern kingdom was in Babylon for 70, years. The Bible focuses, during that time, on Daniel. So you have a book in your Bible uh, called Daniel. And if you're familiar with that book, then you have Daniel and you have three other young men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are all carted off to, to Babylon. Babylon took the choicest of the young men, the most able and healthy, uh, to, uh, to exile, left some people behind in, in Jerusalem, but Daniel and his three friends, and the book of Daniel uh, is about what happens to them when they're in captivity in Babylon, but also uh, what Daniel is able to do on behalf of the Lord and His people while there and we're going to see some of that in a bit. So Babylon fell eventually to another kingdom, the Persian Empire and they let the Judeans return to Jerusalem. Most of them were from the tribe of Judah, thus the name Jews, although the tribe of Benjamin and some Levites were also in the southern kingdom. And then they return. That's recorded, as you see in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra and Nehemiah. Three groups under three leaders returned to Jerusalem in the 400s B.C. Zerubbabel returned first with a group who rebuilt the temple. Ezra returned as a religious leader. And Nehemiah returned as a political governor who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. With these men and the prophets God raised up to predict the coming of Christ, the Old Testament ends. All right, so you go, wow. So we just sort of run through that and we say, that's the end of the Old Testament? And the prophets just get a scant mention? With these men, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and the prophets of God. Well, it turns out the prophets of God make up a bunch of your Old Testament. So how are they only getting one line here? Well, I'll show you in a second. With the bottom of page 10, So what we've got for the Old Testament is the first 2,000 years are covered in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. The second 2,000 years are outlined with these 12 events that we've seen on the last few pages, parts 1 and 2. The second 2,000 years is followed by a 400-year gap between the Old and New Testaments. That gap is called the inter-testament times, and we'll cover that in just a bit. So, if you will, take a look at, then, is it page 11 with the next chart? Okay. We can fill in your next chart. Then we can talk about the prophets and why we gave them scant att- attention. And then begin to look at this intertestamental uh, time, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. It's an important time to understand the New Testament. So top of page 11, you've got the second 2,000 years, part two, from David to Daniel and the end of the Old Testament. You see the timeline on the left, the key person in 1000 B.C. is again David. And the key event is the kingdom. So it's David and the kingdom. And then as you move forward, you know, David's the king from right around 1000 B.C. to 970 B.C. And then Solomon becomes the king the king. And Solomon's the king for about 40 years. We said Saul, David, Solomon. They were all for about 40 years each. And so you got Solomon. You see there the timeline, the year 930. You guys see that? And then 930 is 40 years after Solomon started. He started in 970. And so then after him it's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. That's why you show the split there. Into Israel the ten tribes, and Judah, the two tribes. And Israel lasts about 200 years, goes into exile in Syria, never to be heard from until recently. And then Judah, about 300 years, and they go into exile into Babylon. You get to the right, the far right of the timeline, the key person is Daniel, and the key event is the exile. Daniel and the exile. On the left side, you've got that rectangular uh, box going down the left, and you've got these five events. Uh, Number eight, the event is the split, just split, you know, the kingdom is split in two. Uh, Number nine is Israel. You can see this all up at the timeline. You can see where the 10 is. It says Judah. And then number 11 is Babylon or the exile. And then number 12 is the return from Babylon. So split, then Israel, then Judah, the Babylonian exiles. number 11. The return is number 12. All right, Then you got those boxes to the right of that rectangle, the United Kingdom. That is not Britain, that is, uh, this is the kingdom that was unified rather than split, that's what we're saying. And it had three kings under a unified monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon. Saul, David, Solomon. First, second, third. But then after Solomon, it gets broken up. Northern, southern. Under Israel, the northern, that's Jeroboam, it lasts 200 years, it has 19 kings. That's Jeroboam, 200 and and then 19 kings. On Judah, the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, 300 years, 19 kings. The northern kingdom, on the left, is exiled to Assyria, southern kingdom to Babylon, you got that box with the key person. Again, that's Daniel. In Babylon, the key person is Daniel. And then you've got the return is led by, and the return is led by the three people mentioned on the previous page, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Now, these charts might be a bit of a pain to fill out and listen to me go through, but they're... They're helpful now. You can return to them. And as you're reading your Bible and you're going, okay, when was this happening? You can go to your chart and you can see the timeline. You can see what the major events are so that you don't get lost in all the detail. Everybody good? Anybody miss anything? All right, page 12 that says, the 39 Old Testament books. So in the next couple pages, we're going to talk about uh, why we just could give you know, fairly uh, quick attention to the, the prophets. The 39 Old Testament books, there are 66 in total. Old Testament, 39, covering about 4,000 years. The New Testament has 27, covering less than 100. The 39 Old Testament books are divided into three types of history books, poetry, and Prophecy. The history books are Genesis through Esther. So we've talked about what's in those next couple paragraphs, so I'm not going to go through that. Middle of page 12, the poetry books, Job, are Job through the Song of Solomon. Job uh, is probably the oldest book in in the entire Bible. You see that it says Job probably lived sometime between Noah and Abraham. So even though it's not the first book, and even though Genesis records obviously the oldest event, namely creation, it was written by Moses, and Moses came later than than Job. So Job was very, very early on. The Psalms were written primarily by David, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, written by, by Solomon. And then you've got the prophecy books. And as you go into your Old Testament, it's easy to get lost in the prophecy books. You know, so who are who are these prophets? The next page we've got a whole all, all of them listed. But you got guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And those are large books. Uh, large books uh, that all have some predictions about things that are going to happen in the future but they also have information about what was happening at the time. So they're large books and because they're large books they're called the Major Prophets. You guys ever heard that? The Major Prophets. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as some as the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets does does not mean unimportant. It means their books are small. That's what it means. So the Major Prophets, large books, and the Minor Prophets are, are smaller books. And so you can kind of get lost in who these people are, though. Okay, I got Ezekiel, and I got Jeremiah, and I've got Isaiah, and then I've got you know people like Micah, and I got Joel, and I've got Habakkuk, and I got Haggai. You know, it just Malachi. So how do I how do I keep them all straight? And that's what this next portion I think is helpful uh, for. You got these three kinds of um, books. You've got the history books, the poetry books, and prophecy books, but about two thirds of the way down, you see there on page twelve the prophecy books, there are three kinds of prophecy books. There are those that are written before the Babylonian exile, those written during and those written after. So if you can if you can get that in your mind and will you have your ready reference for you here, that hey the The Babylonian exile, we saw in our timeline that that takes place in the 500s B.C., specifically 586 B.C. So there's that, and you've got these prophecy books then, are written either before, they're written while it was happening, or they're written after. And we're going to see the list. So it's easiest to learn the after. And the reason it's easiest to know the after is because they're where you would expect them to be. They're the last three books in the Old Testament. So they're Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi is the very last one. So those three are last, and they're all written after this slavery, this exile in Babylon. And there are only two that are written while it was going on. Daniel, and the other one, Is Ezekiel. So that leaves the before the exile books. Before uh, books, they were written during the divided kingdom. So you got the north and you got the south. And they've got their own three groups. Bottom of page 12, the the so called Gentile books. Jonah was written to Nineveh, Obadiah to Edom. Then you got the northern kingdom. you got three of them, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and the rest of them are southern kingdom books. So anything that hasn't been covered, Isaiah or Micah, then it's before the exile and written to the southern kingdom. So now take a look at the next page and see all of that kind of listed, pulled together. So you got three kinds of books. See them on the right there? History, poetry, prophecy. And the history books are, you've got 17 of them there, Genesis through Esther. And then you've got the five poetry books, 18 through 22. You guys see those in the middle? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you've got, from books 23 to 39, the prophecy books. And next to each of those, you've got where they come in the timeline. So look at the first three of the prophets, Numbers 23 to 25, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. These were written before the exile, so before the 500s B.C. They were written before that. And then it says before the exile to the southern kingdom. Now, it might be a little clearer if you were to put a comma after before the exile, comma. Because that, if you just read it all together, it can sound like before before they were exiled to the southern kingdom. But they weren't exiled to the southern kingdom. (laughs) It was before the exile happened, and these books were written to the southern kingdom. That's what it's saying. So Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom, Judah. You read the, the book of Isaiah, and that's what you'll see. Jeremiah, same thing. Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. Ezekiel and Daniel were written while the exile was going on. You've got these other three that were written, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, written, yes, before, but not to the southern kingdom. These were written to the northern kingdom of Israel. The Gentile prophecies are called that because they're written to nations that are not Judah or Israel, to Nineveh and Edom. And then you got the rest. One last thing to notice about these prophets. Notice how many of them, their names end in, like A-H or E-L. And that's because many of them have the name of God in their name. And in the Old Testament, uh, parents didn't choose names out of like baby books. So, like, you know, today everybody's using the same baby book. And so as as kids go into the same grade together, there'll be six of the same thing. Because everybody's using the same same baby book, right? But, you know, back then they were trying, they were naming their children with the prayer that this name will represent the character that this child will have as they grow. And a lot of times it had the name of God in it. You guys remember, several weeks ago, we said that in the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that that there are various names for God used there. Remember that? One of them was Elohim, El, Elohim. So the E-L. That's why you got a bunch of E-Ls here. So Joel, Ezekiel, Daniel. That's all, the Elohim piece. Many of them are have the Ah at the end, and that would be Yah, like in Yahweh. And so it's some name with God in it. Jonah, Obadiah, Micah, you know, Micah. Who is like Yah? That's what that's what Micah, that's what the name means. Who is like God? Um, does anybody know a contemporary Christian guy? He's not contemporary anymore. And I read recently he got in some trouble, some kind of scandal. But um, Chris Rice, do you guys know who that is? Okay, see, that's how old I am, Chris Rice. Um, I've got this great album by him, by the way, it's really <laughs> where he's playing the piano and he's doing these hymns. They're, they're just fantastic. But he did this bit probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago, where he was doing a concert for kids. And in this concert for kids, he was uh, asking the question, you know, what if Bible, char- Bible characters were cartoon characters for the kids? And so he was doing like Scooby-Doo. Okay, anybody know Scooby-Doo? Tell me somebody knows Scooby-Doo. Okay. And, and he was doing a little Flintstones as well. And so as he's singing, he's singing like hallelujah. Okay, now what's yah mean? Yahweh, right? That's short for the name of God. And hallel hallel means praise. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. So just be careful how you use these things, right? This is the name of God. Uh, But he's doing this thing and he's going and he's doing, he's saying scooby-dooby-doo-yah. And Abadabaduya isn't it, the front song? okay? And the kids are having an gr- uproarious time. But, you know, if you're going to write songs, <laughs> Christian songs, see musicians, now, see, now I'm going off on a rant here. But, but musicians, musicians ought to have to, like, study the Bible. Christian musicians ought to have to have some, some modicum of theology. So that they could write proper lyrics and not do stuff like that. I'm all for kids having a great time. Just be careful. Really, now, we, get, we really need to be careful about using the name of, name of God. So that's why you got so many of them named, named that way. All right? Now, I, that brings you to the end of the Old Testament, then. But the New Testament doesn't start right away. Um, instead, you've got 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament. And if you don't know something about what happened in those 400 years, you come to the New Testament and you go, I'm completely lost. Because people just, groups and events just suddenly start showing up. Like you get to your New Testament and you start reading about Jesus going to the synagogue. And in the Old Testament you never read about a synagogue. So now you should be wondering, okay, what is that? And you very quickly have Jesus getting into scuffles with people called Pharisees. Well, you didn't find any of those in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees are at the throats of some people called the Sadducees so you don't have them in the Old Testament either so you have a, you have a bunch of stuff going on here that you didn't have when last we left you <laughs> at, with the book of Malachi none of that's none of that's happening you don't have as the book of Luke begins and he talks about the emperor Augustus, giving a decree that all of the world should be taxed. And so everybody in the Roman Empire had to go to the city of their ancestry. And so this brings Mary and Joseph on a journey to go to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? We saw that, right? Going way back to the Old Testament. That's the city of their ancestry. That's where they got to go. For a census so that they could be taxed. But who's the emperor? I mean, I saw in the Old Testament a pharaoh, a bunch of kings. Now we got an emperor. Well, what's happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New that we got all that going on? And it all happens in these 400 years. So you've got to know something about the 400 years. We're going to see that 400 years to prepare us for the New Testament, and then we'll look at the New Testament itself. It is 8.15, time for us to quit. So we have completed um, seven sessions, and we got five to go. Nope, we completed six, and we got six to go. So we're halfway done. Um, You will be next week, you will be on the downward slope. So he who endures to the end shall be saved, the Bible says. (laughs) Have a good rest of the week. Mike, how you doing, man? Pastor, how you doing? Good to have you. Good. Yeah, you've you. been doing okay. Yeah, just trying to age gracefully. You know. <laughs> I <hear> you. <laughs>